to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is called Romantic. weeks with a sort of a special episode I suppose in between we've been talking about Richard Linklater's before trilogy and specifically centered our conversations on ideas around the role of other people in contemplating our place in the world and sort of what pair bonding can and can't do and the right kind of pair bonding that we should engage in and when it goes too far and when it doesn't go far enough blah 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 and I think this week's episode which we're going to center on the idea of romance things being romantic, what is romantic, what is romanticism, I think kind of sums up all of those episodes um, nicely. And I think it's been, you know, some of them might have been a bit vague, a bit pro- profound. And I, I think it all sort of comes down to this week. We'll be talking about, well, what is romance? That's sort of at the core of these romantic bonds. What is it? And, and what is its role? What's the role that it plays in gelling two people together in a sort of peaceful and harmonic um and kind of uh, positive and an enjoyable way, rather than sort of some of the the, the more kind of um, I don't mean to say purely pessimistic, but kind of chaotic or or you know, some of the conversations have been a little bit uh, dark and dreary, I suppose, a little bit. And and this we're going to try and try and reconcile some of the issues that we've brought up in those in those last couple of weeks. Um, so I hope you've bared with us um, over the last couple of weeks in, in chatting about these concepts regarding people and interpersonal relationships and that sort of thing. But I should say it from the very beginning, you know, if we're talking, if we, you know, this is a show where we talk about film and cinema and if, if you're doing anything sort of in the arts or in the cultural arena and you're using the word romance or romantic, um, you best be careful not to use it in the wrong sense because it's a very charged term in that context, right? Um the word romance or romantic or romanticism or even Roman, um, they all kind of have a very specific, but they're all sort of related, um, specific meaning. And I think we should sort of set this thing out a little bit uh, better at the beginning of today's show, just so it's clear to everyone what we're talking about when we're talking about certain things. So um, drawing on from drawing from Jane Neller's book on German romanticism, I'm not going to specifically center on German romanticism, but romanticism in general, um, she talks about how the etymology of the word romantic can be traced to the old French. Um, romans which refers to or referred to the vernacular romance languages such as italian french spanish etc uh, which were developed from latin um, hence hence the being called romance languages and um subsequently the, the t- tales of chivalry written often well, mostly written in those romance languages came to be known as medieval romance or roman and then later, the the authors of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, such as Dante or Shakespeare, they, when they were abandoning sort of classical forms um, in their work, um, they were sort of seen as the inventors of a romantic kind of fantastical style. And then in the 18th century, you've got uh, the semantic field of the word romantic in uh, common English usage, which expanded to include things like the picturesque or the fanciful and the fantastic. And so when we use the word romantic this week, we're using a very broad brush. Um, we're kind of talking about all of the through lines that run through all of those concepts and movements, sort of like the elements that are the core of all of those ideas, not just random concepts that, that sort of 
um, show up in each of the films we're going to be talking about. But, but kind of these through lines of um, emotions, particularly insofar as they differ to thoughts uh, thoughts and logic and rationality and, and a human analysis, and particularly the, the emotion of love, which is kind of often, you know, the deepest emotion. And then, you know, in, in mixed in with that is sort of um, nature, um, and, you know, trusting one's gut and things that occur naturally um, sort of independent of human thought, independent of human constructs and human institutions. And that, that sort of flows into this idea of the limits of human perception, the limits of human knowledge, you know, the, the limits of artificiality. And then that also leads into this sort of embrace of what's mysterious, um, which will also sort of play into gothic ideas we're not, which we're not really going to talk about today but we will sort of talk about them in a few later weeks running off from this week's episode so, so sort of in this swirling kind of concoction of emotion and, and natural instinct and the, the limits of cognition the limits of artificial constructs the limits of coming up with ideas that will fix the world and rather kind of the idea of like rolling with one's emotions in life letting one's emotions take over and seeing the beauty in that that's kind of what we mean when we talk about things being romantic um but I think we'll be we'll be at a better. I think we'll be better at uh, explaining that uh, in actually talking about the films this week. The first one we're going to talk about is Jane Campion's two thousand nine film Bright Star, starring Australian uh, Abby Cornish. Shout out to you, Abs. Um, we're then going to move on to Grizzly Man, directed by Werner Herzog, um, two thousand and two, uh, and then we're going to finish off, of course, with Richard Linklater's third film in the Before trilogy, and that would be Before Midnight. But let's keep things off now with Bright Star. So if you don't know much about this one, it came out in 2009. I remember when it came out, it was kind of a big film, but not many people have probably talked about it since. It was at Cannes and it was nominated for Best Costume Designer at the Oscars. But I was really drawn to this film this week just because um, it, it's clearly a film that wants to celebrate romanticism um, kind of in, in every sense of the word because it, it centres on the on the, the relationship between Fanny Braun and famous uh, English poet John Keats, who was a famous romantic poet. Um and I think, as I mentioned a second ago, this is a sort of film that we can look at as um, a film that depicts the world's inherent beauty, um, both in terms of you know the story of these two people, like that actually happened in real life, and, and the film itself. Um, sort of the, both both the, the the real true story and the film itself are celebrations of romanticism, celebrations of. You can imagine Campion wanted to make this film after maybe watching Pride and Prejudice or something, being like, I really want to make one of those. I really want to make a really filmic film about. Keats and what it was like to write poetry in that time in the early 19th century in England and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I want to talk about, in, in talking about how it's an inherent, uh, it's, sorry, it's a celebration of the world's inherent beauty, I want to talk about specifically the, the, the form of the film uh, and then its sort of depictions of certain themes and that sort of thing um, and, and sort of how far it goes in depicting the beauty in the world. So the first part, the form of the film and and. I suppose when I say form, I don't mean um, sort of the structure itself. I, I, should, I probably should mean, I, I guess I sort of mean like the, the substance of the film or the way the film appears, um, maybe like the aesthetics of the film or, or sort of like the visual premise of the film, you could say. Uh, what I mean is like the, the setting of it being set um, in Hampstead Heath, you know, in, in country gardens and people walking around with flowers in their ears, above their ears and in sitting in pretty dresses by streams and, and lying in the grass and meadows. We, we have a very romantic setting or traditionally romantic setting. As I mentioned before, the film was nominated for Best Costume Design because the costumes are very, um, you know, it's something you'd see uh, in, in a period drama, which is what it, you know, it is a period piece and... Um, you know, whenever we see that sort of thing, we're reminded of a, a sort of idyllic, um, sort of idyllic world where where people took real um, 
pleasure in looking nice and dressing up. And whenever you watch something like this, like, man, how much work would it have been to dress up and look nice all the time? But people back then, like, they were, you know, if you read a Jane Austen novel, something like people are very sort of concerned with how they present themselves and their demeanour um, and, and, and sort of how they look in public and when they go to dances and ballrooms and things like that. It, it's got a very romantic edge to it. It's just presenting oneself, presenting, presenting oneself when flirting with others and, and it being an encounter that, you know, rates high on a scale of all the many encounters you've had with potential romantic partners and that sort of thing. And then also I think the film being about John Keats, who was a famous romantic poet, um, and in both senses, like a, he was a, like a romantic poet in the sense of he was a poet during the romantic period, but also his poems are romantic in the sense that a lot of them are about love and loving people and, and loving, um, you know, loving people and that sort of thing. The, the film is romantic in both those senses as well. But getting deeper into the film and how it sort of uh, depicts sort of the ever-presence, how beauty has this sort of ever-presence that love and love in the natural world is sort of uh, omnipresent, um, I think is certainly captured in the scene where um, Fanny is trying to get uh, lessons on how to understand poetry from John. And she's like, I don't really understand poetry. How does poetry work? It's like that classic conversation that people often have about poetry or about art and paintings and that sort of thing. And she's like, I don't understand. I don't know how to get the inherent meaning. I never understand what's going on. He says, look, I'll actually quote him directly here because I think it sort of sums up the whole film quite nicely. He says, a poem needs understanding through the senses, as opposed to the cognition. cognition." The, The point of diving in a lake is not immediately to swim to the shore, right? It's not immediately, in the, in the, you know, in the case of a poem, it's not to you know, immediately find the meaning behind the word. Like, it's not a code, you see. But, you know, the point of diving, like, it's not immediately to swim to the shore, but to be in the lake, to luxuriate in the sensation of water. You do not work out. Um, you, do not, you, do not, you do not work the lake out. It is uh, an experience beyond thought. And I think that sort of sums up the romantic period and romanticism itself is that you don't use too much of your head to figure out the person, to figure out what's going on. You let your heart take over. You let your gut and emotions take over. You let them lead the way. You let the experience. And there's this real sort of motif of fluidity, not just because it's in a lake, but the idea of, you know, it's 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 in the process of doing rather than the, the goal, the achievement of where you arrive at. And then we've spoken about this in, in weeks past. That's certainly a motif that runs through the Before trilogy as well, of particularly Celine's characters constantly talking about progress being much important than actually getting to point B. It's it's the journey along the way. And that's very romantic in its idea. It's, it's the doing, it's the loving, it's the moment. It's the figuring out, um, letting the heart doing the figuring out rather than letting the head do it. And in how much this film kind of fetishizes or in how much the characters sort of fetishize that, those ideas around romance and romanticism, I think you know, this allure that love has, this allure that romanticizing has, um, you know, in terms of how alluring it is for human beings, I should say, um, that, that beauty that we, that, that we um, project onto love extends to tragedy extends to finding beauty in tragedy that's how much we love it we love love and we love romance so much that when tragedy occurs we still find something beautiful in it we still find something heart-wrenching and you know think about how you sometimes put on a sad song because it makes you feel good somehow 
Um, we, we do find love and romance in all things from the sort of the classically romantic, like a kiss on the lips or something, all the way to, you know, the death of someone we love. And I don't want to talk too much about that, but, um, you know, it doesn't take much. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, another story, uh, Romeo and Juliet, for example, which is actually mentioned in Before Midnight, um, that's, a, that's a classic example of how tragedy can somehow, for an audience member, induce a sense of deep emotion. And we can romanticize a horrible moment because it makes us feel good for some reason. So romance is certainly in our all our bones, but is there a danger, right, in romanticizing, especially if we're in this territory of romanticizing the tragic? This is where things get a little bit interesting for me. So we're going to move into our next film now, but before we do, just a reminder, you are listening to Sacred Cinema here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the remainder of this half hour, and I would uh, love it if you could stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX after Sacred Cinema and also consider jumping onto our website to consider sponsoring the show or any of 2.0x's shows or subscribing to the station. We'd love it if you could do that. We'd absolutely, we'd love it with all our hearts. It would be a very romantic thing for you to do. Uh, But moving on now to Grizzly Man, directed by Werner Herzog. So if Bright Star is all about the inherent beauty in the world, um, I think Grizzly Man is all about the danger of seeing um, inherent beauty in all aspects of the world and in all aspects of nature. Basically, the film centers, it's a, it's a documentary, and this might be the very, um, this might be the very first documentary we've ever done on the show. Message, you can email me at contact at if this is the first documentary we've ever done on the show. Um, but it essentially centers on um, Timothy Treadwell, who was um, sort of colloquially referred to as the grizzly man. And he was this chap that used to go out into the Alaskan wilderness and live with grizzly bears. Uh, and then he met his end uh, in doing that. And that's sort of, I'm not getting away the ending that's kind of known from pretty early on in the film that that's sort of what happened to him. And the whole film is kind of like an exploration of like, what was this guy? What was going on? Why did he do that? And really it's about human beings. And it's, it's quite explicit from Herzog and his narration that this is really the story of mankind and mankind's relationship to nature. And so I think the first aspects we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about two things in terms of how this film conveys sort of the, da- the danger of romanticizing. We're going to talk about how it talks about the danger of romanticizing nature, using romanticizing in that instance. But I also want to talk about it in terms of how it does romanticize how the, the, the actual role love, even this is a film about nature and, and bears, it is also a film about love and how love can be dangerous for us in, our, in how we romanticize, you know, because the act of love can often be an act of romanticizing that can be dangerous for us. So in terms of how the film depicts this idea of you know, rom- the danger of romanticizing nature, I mean, that's a very Herzogian, Herzogian kind of idea. All of his films from Agira, Wrath of God, you know, they're, they're, they're all about, you know, why it's important to respect nature, not to conquer nature, um, how humankind is pretty insignificant in the face of how dangerous nature can be. And I mean, it's literally on the poster. It says, like, in nature there are boundaries is clearly the main theme of this film. And we see this in the obvious metaphor of a man trying to be, you know, one, trying to be friends with what are ostensibly vicious, sharp-toothed, razor-clawed, bloodthirsty, natural-born killers, right? Grizzly bears are, like, the most, like, stereotypically dangerous, like, animals you can think of in the wild. And this is a guy that goes out there and wants to hug them and, and, and be their best friend. And when you think about it like that, it is almost absurd. Yet as we watch it, we can totally see how easy it is to personify these wild beasts, right? He gives them names, he relates to them, he talks about how they relate to each other. 
you know, he, he certainly draws parallels between their societies and human societies in a way, not, not in a deliberate artistic sense. Treadwell is a little bit of just a guy who loves bears, but when we're watching it, and it's like when you watch any kind of documentary, you can't help but ascribe like personality to these animals. I remember when I was at the zoo at Dubbo a couple of months ago, I, I was looking at the lions, I was like, they remind me of people, even though they haven't got nearly the slightest sense of human morality but anyway um and i think this is really well conveyed the absurdity of that is you know they talk about timothy um when they talk to his parents how they have his childhood teddy bear there and like this it's one of those weird sort of coincidences one of those sort of beautiful um connections there where you're like human beings we do like we like we do do that a lot like we take something like a vicious grizzly bear and we turn it into a childhood plaything, which is such an absurd um act of you know subversion yet we all do and it's so relatable because they're fuzzy or something we we, we, we can we as i said before we can truly romanticize the tragic or truly romanticize the dangerous very easily um and you know throughout the film herzog refers to this kind of invisible line that uh, treadwell saw between the human world and the animal world um, and then by the, you know, as, as the film progresses, we kind of see that that line doesn't really exist. It's, chaos underlines everything. Um, and if you haven't seen the film, you might kind of flinch at that line to begin with. Like that, it's like, well, isn't the human world the nice world and the animal world the not nice world? And it's like, weirdly, when you're sort of, you're, you're sort of, the film sort of induces this reaction from where you also kind of start to think of the animal world as the nice, natural, green and beautiful freshwater world and the human world's the disgusting, gross one. But then, when you think about it, it's kind of sometimes the other way around, depending on how you conceive it. You know, where where who are the true savages? Who are the true animals? That kind of question around that. I think what this film does is really just obliterates that 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 distinction altogether. So as to say, like it's not really about saying you know which one is the civilized one, which one is the nice peaceful one. It's the idea that romanticizing itself is the problem, right? We shouldn't you know, romanticize either. There is no line, there's no distinction. Chaos is everywhere. And the problem is us thinking that chaos doesn't exist in either world or in the in the, the unified world that we can that we live in. Um, so I think that is interesting to sort of check which side you think is which, um, and, and to arrive at that point where it's romanticism itself is the problem, not which side is the good one. And and, and thinking about that in other arenas as well, but we won't go down that road. Um, but also I just want to touch more briefly on this idea of how he talks about how love being an act of romanticizing sometimes. And I say that specifically because we're going to, we're going to talk about this a little bit further in a second, but how the act of romanticizing, especially particularly in the arena of love, is in and of itself dangerous. And this, even though this is a film about nature, it's certainly still a film about love and it's certainly relevant to stories about... It's certainly relevant to questions around you know, lowercase art romance in the sense that he constantly... Treadwell constantly speaks about his love for the animals. Like He refers to it as... Like he explicitly refers to loving the animals and he, when he plays with them, um, he, he sort of does it in a very cutesy voice. And you can't help but think as well, you know, knowing that people come from all walks of life that maybe he did have a some kind of a sexual relationship with not specifically with the animals but maybe in his head or he kind of wished to maybe do that because that's not unheard of you know some people are like that um and, and sort of that said something about his psychological situation where he was at and and, and you know who he was as a, as a guy but also you know in, in seeing him as this sort of microcosmic version of the human of humankind you know when we romanticize are there deficiencies elsewhere that we're making up for when we romanticize certain things? Like, like if, if, if someone is romanticizing a grizzly bear that wants to eat you alive, 
What deficiency in your normal life do you have that induces you to think that that's something that's appropriate and it's going to be good for you? And I think we sort of, when we find out about what his actual love life was like in the real world, um, you start to realise maybe why he was the way he was and why he was drawn to seeing nature and seeing the animal world or even constructing this animal world in the first place, knowing that the, the real world wasn't really for him and that he was lacking in certain areas there and he was drawn to certain things and, and became sort of um, maybe a bad romantic in one world and a good romantic in, in the other. But I think at this point we're kind of getting, getting to a point where we're kind of implying that we shouldn't ever engage in romantic life and that we should dispose romance altogether. But I don't want us to leave today's show thinking that, of course, let's try and reconcile this uh, this this uh, contradiction here. Look, is there a way that we can kind of reconcile our love of romance, our love of love, um, and also the, the, the danger of romanticizing? Well, at this point, let's move on to our final film for today's conversation. That would be Before Midnight, directed by Richard Linklater. That's the third film of the Before trilogy, the first we've already been speaking about on the show. And this is the one where we fast forward through Jesse and Celine's life and their holidaying in Greece with their two girls. And uh, Jesse's son with his former wife is there at the very beginning. And we start to see that while they were the sort of perfect love story at the beginning of this trilogy... Um, things aren't going so well for them now. As, at least as things sort of, as, as the film progresses, we kind of realise that there are some some serious problems in their in their marriage. And I want to talk about this one in terms of how it conveys this idea of obtaining true romance without pure romance. So it's a bit like obtaining true man, true romance, sans pure romance and. What, we, what do we mean by pure romance or what do we mean by stereotypical romance, let's say, or capital R romance? Well, the whole trilogy kind of boils down to this film, right? Um, and I think what if you were to sum up the trilogy in one sense, you kind of say that it's like um, what would happen if you were a party to the world's greatest stereotypically romantic love affair? And I think what the film is kind of saying is that even the most stereotypically romantic love affair, the, the most romantic romance you can imagine – that one would still result in some degree of failure by the time you reach middle age. And that says something about human love and relationships and that sort of thing. But it's not a totally pessimistic film. But let's unpack why. So as we've discussed recently on the show, bonds between people are destined to be charged and to have friction. And it's sort of like friction is the destiny of every relationship, which, you know, friction is what creates fire, right? And it's almost like, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I think we've sort of got to this point where we're sort of saying that, like, when you have friction, which creates the fire in a relationship, you can either see that fire as fiery passion, you know, a kind of like Latin, like, oh, yeah, baby, uh, caliente fire of passion, or you can see it as the fire that's going to burn down your house and destroy your life. And I think that there's a particular scene in this film that really strikes me as interesting, particularly because it's kind of like the first scene in the whole trilogy where it's not a conversation between Jesse and Celine. It's the it's the lunch table scene where you've got Jesse and Celine, you've got the Greek couple sitting across from them of similar ages, them they're friends, and then on one end of the table you've got the young beautiful couple, on the other end of the table you've got the old. Um, couple who aren't even together you've got like an old man and an old woman who are just sort of friends and they both separately have other partners but they're not there and it kind of shows us like the spectrum of relationships and and, and kind of the, the classic trends you see in relationships where you know when people are young they're beautiful and sexy and fit and and um you know energetic and then when they're old they kind of you know don't move as fast they talk a bit slower but they seem to be a bit calmer they kind of know what life's all about and then in the middle you've got these two 
middle-aged couples and it's almost like there's two of them almost to say that like one of them is the weirdly open and and the one the you know the, the, obviously the, the latin greek one you know they're weirdly open and they kind of embrace each other and their own flaws in that kind of they're kind of kind of playful, jokey way where they kind of like joke about dumping each other and leaving each other for younger people because they but because they joke about it, you kind of think it's okay. Like they're not actually going to do it, and they've kind of they've got a really healthy relationship with their monogamy and what it really is in reality, and they've come to love their relationship for everything it is and isn't. And you know, in embracing their deficiency, that's actually how they bring themselves together better. And in understanding how they're not so attracted to each other as they used once was, that actually weirdly makes them more attracted to each other because of that bond that they form. And on the other end of the table, across that, you've got Jesse and Celine, who, as I've said, sort of are on the brink, you know, in, in their relationship. And interestingly, from this scene, we go straight to the scene where Jesse and Celine are walking off to this hotel room, which is where you know, the, the climax of the whole trilogy sort of takes place. And I think what's particularly interesting about it is that they're invited to that hotel f- by that Greek couple in that the Greek couple have actually been there before. It's also just talking about it now, the fact that they're Greek, I like it's got like this kind of ancient classical element to it, like fundamental, like back to the basics, back to the original ideas around love and, and I'm going down that rabbit hole there, but... I just think it's interesting, like, the, the fact that this scene takes place in a hotel room that they were invited to by the Greek couple, it sort of indicates that when they get to that room, they're being invited into that world that that Greek couple live in. They're being invited into their home. And it's like, how do they adapt in that in that arena? Are they able to thrive in it or do they fall apart? Are they, are they unable to exist in that realm, let's say? But in order to get to the bottom of all that, let's go back through everything we've chatted about today. Because I don't think the sort of ending of that film really has the significance unless we sort of cover all the grounds first. So we talked about Bright Star. We talked about how much we love love, you know, how much we love romance. And, you know, so we, so we actually love romance so much so that we we can enjoy it even in the darkest times. We're kind of freaky in that way that we can even in the face of death we can love it because we love to love things but there is an inherent danger in this you know you can't really love everything and get away with you can't love a grizzly bear and live to tell the tale right there is an inherent danger in the world there is chaos that lurks everywhere and you can't just hold everything closely eventually you're going to get bitten so in reconciling this contradiction let's go to before midnight where the characters are confronted with continuing their union despite gaping issues in it despite massive gashes in their union despite clear uh, problems, but lacerations, holes, you know, chasms in that, that once tightly wound unit, that union that was forged in the most romantic setting in the world, in the most romantic sort of situation one can imagine. So there's clearly a romantic love worth fighting for between Jesse and Celine. That's akin to that between Fanny Braun and John Keats, right? It's akin to the most beautiful, most romantic relationship one, two people can have. But that doesn't mean that they should expect each other to, let's say, embody the virtues of those people to embody the virtues of a 19th century romantic poet for example and interestingly just going back to bright star it's interesting that i don't want to give too much away but we don't see the story of a relationship that continues on from there it's almost like if you want to tell a truly romantic story it needs to end at a particular point where it's not quite matured yet. And at this point, I want to refer back to that mentioned to Romeo and Juliet. The reason why that film can be so, that, that play can be so romantic, I'm not the first person to say this, I've said this on the show before, is because it ends early, right? It's because they don't get married and have kids together. That, that's what allows them to do that. And you can say the same thing about a lot of films like Titanic, for example, going on. So, you know, 
you know, even though if you do have a really romantic relationship with someone, it doesn't mean that you should expect that the other person, you know, should embody the, the, the virtues of someone like John Keats, right? Um, because that's not really realistic. It's not, it's not the real world. We actually have to, we have to really be careful to mistake, you know, what is a car- carnivorous grizzly bear standing across from us, right? That, that has, might have our engagement ring on their finger, but that they are still this natural creature, you know, with teeth and, 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 and a propensity to, to, to be angry. And, and it's really important that we don't mistake that, that, uh, that beast uh, for this sort of stuffed animal that protects us from our nightmares, right? Perhaps true, man, true romance actually comes from earning the respect of that creature, um, earning the respect of our fellow natural-born killers rather than just romanticizing them. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Thank you so much for joining us here on Sacred Cinema. And please stay tuned for more quality radio program, uh, more quality radio programs here on 2XX. Or jump onto our website to consider listening there or subscribing to the station or sponsoring any of our shows. would be very much appreciated, guys. But um, until next week, thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. Cheers. <laughs>